You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So happy to be here in in Paragold. Uh, You are, whether you know it or not, a a famous church. I've I've known about you for a long time, since before you were formed. Uh, Jared picked me up from the airport in Memphis like nine years ago, and uh, he was excited about starting a church in Paragold. And uh, something that I just want to say before we get started that's totally not in my notes or prepared, um, so it could be terrible. But the thing is, is it's one of the things that I know from the, the whole story of Scripture and from the Gospel, that, that God sent His Son uh, to Nazareth, to Galilee, to Bethlehem, to Israel, this insignificant, tiny part uh, of the world the thing that I know is that the gospel means that there's no such thing as an insignificant town. Like that, that there's, a, there's a small town that doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Or this church, like, it, you know, we're good, but it's, it doesn't matter. Uh, one of the things that I just want to say, I think that as an encouragement, is that, that you as a church, uh, the crossings, is uh, instrumental and vital to the whole kingdom of God not just in Paragol, not just in Northeast Arkansas, but, but to the whole world. Whether, whether you believe that or not, like that's true about who you are, uh, and that's true about the power of being the church. Uh, also just want to say uh, you're super blessed by the, the leaders that you have, the women and men that care for and lead this church, uh, Jared and Adam and Luke and, and all of the Chuck and your elders, like they're they're really good, good men, you know, and I know I've been friends with Jared for a while. I know that they have flaws and they, uh, they don't do everything perfectly, but just for you to know, you've been gifted with some, not just talented people, but with people with like a heart for the father. And so you're, you're really blessed. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to be here this morning. You've been in a series about what you're going to be as a church, who you are, uh, you talked through about the, being the way of Jesus. You're on the way of Jesus uh, as disciples. Uh, Jared talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, last week, if I'm not mistaken, Adam spoke about how we're on the way uh, of Jesus and we're family. And that makes us family. And today we're talking about how uh, you're on the way of Jesus and you're a missionary. Uh, missionary, which I, I guess I am qualified for. I grew up as a missionary kid, uh, I, uh, which, was, which was really phenomenal in, in Portugal. And so mission, though, since, since the very beginning of the, the global mission movement, which is really just 200 years old, started in England and Denmark and places like that, since the very beginning of it, there's been this deep thing of we can change the world. Uh, like, this is going to change the whole world. And if you go back even further than that, like, we are Americans— so we have this big belief that we can change the world, right? Like, that's what's happening. That's what we're doing here. Uh, and, and I think uh, that, that really begs a question, like, what changes the world? Uh, I have a, a pictures of a few folks here. They're, they're pretty famous. Uh, and I'm going to talk through each of them. So don't leave until I do. 
Uh, the, we've got this, uh, this couple, this married couple, that's Prince Harry and Princess Meghan, or, or they used to be, uh, not anymore. So it's this, uh, in a week, I made this slide, and then in a week's time, they decided they didn't want to be royalty anymore. But there was a day where they got married, and I was, I'm a good dad, I have two daughters, as you saw. We sat there on the couch, we watched this beautiful royal wedding. It was so beautiful. She's a famous actress. He's, you know, a prince. He fought in the war of Afghanistan. He's like a hero. It was the most watched wedding of all time, uh, more than uh, his mom and dad, more than his brother. So he's got that going for him. And the day after, the very next day, a prominent international journalist wrote an article and she said, this wedding changes everything pretty amazing. They're like, this wedding changes everything. All these people saw. It had all these good vibes. There was a gospel choir. The talk was really good. It bridges the gap of racial tension of people that are divorced and people who can get remarried. It like all of the anger, like this lady, I'm serious, in this article said, this heals the wounds of the Revolutionary War. This wedding. Yeah. No longer does America and England have to, I thought maybe World War II did that or World War, but no, this wedding, and she says it changes everything. Uh, there also, we had a president, his name was Barack Obama, he's on the phone in this picture uh, in the Oval Office, and he, he kind of rose to prominence because he was pretty a- incredible individual, just, a, just in our culture. Uh, he taught at one of the most prestigious universities in our country, uh, the Chicago University. He wrote a book that was a best-selling book. He won a Grammy Award for reading his book, Audible, which is, that is hilarious. Like, that's incredible. Uh, he, when he became president, you know, hope and change, which was the whole deal, it was the whole marketing scheme, just because he won an election, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. This is something that we, I think we forget all the time. He won an election, and he was given an award of like, hey, you convinced all those Americans to vote for you. Like, wow, Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) And then he was the president. Hope and change. He had all uh, this executive privilege and power in our country. He could pass laws, change things. He controlled the most powerful military in the world. And this is what he said at his farewell address. Every president since George Washington has gathered some of their best friends and family together. And what he said in Chicago, he gathered them together and he says, you know what? Nothing's going to change until you people change. What we really need is a heart transformation. And I think what he was saying and what he learned even about himself was politics and power and fame and all of these things that we think change the world doesn't. Humans need to change. This last one is uh, Neil Armstrong. He walked on the moon. Pretty, pretty great. Uh, I'm really into that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and it's amazing because you can look at journals and articles that were written at the time, and scientists were all excited that, that the amount of technology that we had produced as, as a world, like both the Russians and the Americans, the, the amount of technology that we created to put a person on the moon was a tipping point. That, with, that from now on, everything's just going to get better. You can even read articles that say, this changes everything. We put a person on the moon, and now all we're going to see is more and more technology that's going to rapidly make this way, make a world where there's no pain or sickness or suffering or war or violence. This is it. We put someone on the moon. 
I think what's amazing is, is that fame, celebrity, politics, power, education, none of that actually changes the world. And we, we know that, right? We know that whoever's, whoever becomes the president or whoever remains the president, that doesn't change the world. We know that whoever gets married or how famous they are, who wins the Oscars next week, that doesn't change the world, right? Well, the, the truth is, is that the Christian story, the, the biblical story, actually says Jesus changes the world. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he is making everything new, you and me, and that changes everything. And here's the thing. Not only does the, the gospel say that, that you are transformed and that you are different, but he says in the gospel, you and I, we, our whole lives now are completely shaped by Jesus. We're shaped by the promise that he's made to make the world new and restore humanity. The gospel isn't just that Jesus came, died, rose again, and we all get to be saved, but that he's put us on a mission of a lifetime, and our whole lives are about transforming the world through him. I know what you're thinking. You're like, what? Really? Which is how my children talk to me about everything. Like, no, you can't have a candy bar. What? Really? And then they do it anyway, and then there's discipline and all of that stuff. So I know for you, you're thinking, really? I'm at the center of this whole like changing of the world thing. Really? Me? And often the words that we're going to read this morning, it's Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. Often the passage, this passage, when we read it, we think, man, this is for someone else. This is for one of those weird group of Christians who dress funny and must have amazing quiet times because they moved to Africa to be missionaries, right? Like that kind of person who's just like so spiritual, you know, the extra level, the Green Beret Christians, who, that's, that, this passage is for those people. Or you might think, man, these words, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, this, these are important words that we need to put on our church website or in our new members class to be like, well, yeah, we're totally about that. Like, that's the church exists to make disciples, check. Like, that's obviously, we're trying to build God's glory and make, like, that's what we're all about. But we all kind of really know that that's not what church is about. Like, church is really about uh, becoming safe and comfortable. Church is really about my needs being met. Life, my life is not really about making disciples. It's really about surviving this whole thing. It's about getting to the end. It's about making sure everyone's okay. And then the mission of God is someone who's way more put together than me. Or the mission of God is what we get to do. This make disciples thing is what we do after we figure out childcare and having enough chairs in here and all of that. After we get to that point, then we'll, we'll make disciples. But what these words are saying, this great commission, is that, that the mission is not just for part of the church or for part of your life. It's saying these words, the great commission, this is what your whole life is about. This is what the entirety of the church is all about. And it's a, this passage is about how God has decided to change the world by his spirit through our lives. That's, that's a phenomenal thing. So let's, let's read about it. Let's see how exactly we're supposed to do that. This is Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. He says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I know we're supposed to just love the Bible equally, right? Like every, every part of the Bible is the same. We all love it equally. Just like with our children, right? Like, no, we don't, they're just different. This passage for me uh, is where I break from my parenting. Uh, verse 16 and 17 for me are, are more than just like verses that need to be described. It describes the state of my life. Right here he says, then the 11 disciples, these 11 disciples, are they're the ones who Jesus came to them while they're fishing and said, come and follow me, or they're doing tax collecting stuff, and Jesus said, come follow me. And then they walked with Jesus, they heard him tell all of these stories. They're the ones that saw him walk on water and calm storms and feed thousands of people. They're the, they're the ones that heard him predict over and over again, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. They're those people who had Jesus sit beneath them and wash their feet. They're the people that sat around a table where Jesus took the bread and the wine and he spread it out and he said, this is the new promise that I've given to you. They're the ones that stood there and watched him be condemned to death. They watched him die. They're also the ones that were sitting in a room and Jesus walked in, raised to new life. And so that's these 11 disciples, pretty uh, pretty incredible life that they were given. And so here Jesus says, I want you to go to this place and I want you to do this thing. And they do. They go exactly where he says. He said, go up to this mountain, go to this area. And they go there. And as they're standing up there, they do this thing, just like what we were doing a bit earlier. They worship him. They're singing out. They're shouting. They're clapping their hands. When Jesus walks towards them, their hearts are elated. They see Jesus and they celebrate the fact that he is the one who saved the whole world. It's pretty like, I want to be that kind of person, but I'm really this kind of person who both worships Jesus in that way. And then the very next line is, and some doubted. There were some that, that they were there worshiping. So he doesn't say some worship, some doubted. He says they all worshiped, but some were also doubting at the same time. This word doubt is used earlier in the story of Matthew, where Peter sort of steps out of the boat, you know, and begins to walk on water. So huge faith, right? He sees Jesus walking to him and he says, I think I could, you know, I see Jesus. I just want to be clear or close to him. And he begins to step out and walk on water towards Jesus. And then though it says he doubted, he lost confidence. He was looking at Jesus and there was this moment where he stopped fully believing and he began to sink, right? And Jesus goes to him and picks him out of the water. That's the same sort of word. It's not so much, you know, he doubted some, you know, why is there a problem of evil in the world? But it's more of they lost a hundred percent certainty, They weren't filled with this complete confidence. There were parts of their lives, parts of their souls, that while they worship Jesus as the king, they also, in their hearts, in little parts of their hearts, they're like, I just don't know if I can trust him. 
Does that sound like someone you know? Does that sound like anybody? I'm going to just tell you right now, that sounds like me. That's, that's like the state of my life. I, work, I'm, I will give my life to Jesus. At the same time, there are parts and there are situations and there are things that happen where I lose 100% confidence. And this is what Jesus does, and this is why it's so life-giving to me. Jesus doesn't come and see them worshiping and some doubting and say, all right, you know, Andrew, Bartholomew, you guys are doubting a little bit. So you guys come over here. We'll get you some counseling in just a sec. But you, you other guys, I'm going to send you on a mission. He doesn't do that. What he does is he, he, he goes to all 11 of them and he says, I'm putting you in the mission. I think for a lot of us, when we hear uh, all of this talk about the mission, we're wondering not, am I equipped enough? Do I know how to share the gospel? Those things are important. But I think the real question that we have is, am I welcomed into that mission? Because I know the state of my own soul and my own life. Am I welcomed there? And Jesus says, not only are you welcomed in this mission, you are crucial in the greatest mission ever conceived. Not just part of it, not just, yeah, you can come. But what Jesus says to these disciples and to us as well is, no, 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 you are vital. You are at the very center of my entire purpose to see the whole world restored and redeemed. That's who you are. I know you doubt. I know you have sin. I know you have struggles. I know that you're not perfect. And I want you. I need you on this mission. I've decided that my plan for the world goes through you. Not only were you dead in sin and separated from God, and then he brought you back to life, but you were brought to the very center of the family of God and the very center of the mission of God. That's who you are. And then he says, to these 11 and to us, I believe, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's all given given to me. This heaven and earth language used throughout the Bible from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's repeated throughout the book of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. Uh, Moses loved this phrase. David loved this phrase as he wrote the Psalms. Like This is just a key thing that, that that the biblical authors use to describe God has everything below your feet and God has everything above your feet. Whenever they wanted to describe heaven and earth, that's what they would do. All of life. Everything you can see, everything you can touch. And what Jesus is saying here is, I have run the race, I have died, I have paid the cost, I have been risen again, and all authority is given to me. There is, amen. You have in Christ someone who is king. He doesn't have an opinion about your life. He doesn't have an opinion on how to make the world a better place. What he does have is all authority over every molecule within your body. Everything that gets formed into a cell within you. Every moment, every possession you have, everything that exists in the world. He paid the cost. He rose again. He is victorious. And it is all his. 
And so what Jesus is saying here is he has authority over you too. Not just some idea like, yeah, he's got the stars and the sky and he's in charge of the plants. It's a claim over their lives and it's a claim over our lives too. I don't know about here in the culture here, but where I've been a pastor, the most common response to this besides amen, I need you win, which is awesome. The other response is who, like what gives him the right? What gives him the right? How is he actually in charge of me? I mean, I think that's, I'm going to go on a leap and say that that's probably true here too, right? We're Americans. Like, it's written on flags. Like, don't tread on me. The whole Boston Tea Party was about us saying, no king has rights over us. But what, the, what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 I have all rights over you. I have all authority. Whether it's your body or your career or your parenting or where you live or your finances or your hobbies or what you do for fun or how you watch your sports teams or what relationships you have and the family that you have in every single things that you have going on in your life, Jesus is king. And this is so important because if that's not true, if Jesus isn't authority over heaven and earth, if he's not authority over every part of your life, everything else he says in this passage is just another like hope and change kind of thing. It's just another we're put a man on the moon kind of thing. But if what he says is true, that he is the ruler of the world, everything that you can touch, everything that you are is underneath his domain and providential care. And at this point, he could ask us to do anything. I don't know if you see that. Sometimes we forget that like, yeah, he has all authority. He could ask us to do anything. He could say, you know, paint your faces blue. And we'd be like, well, yeah, you have all authority on heaven and earth. It might sound ridiculous to us, but that's the kind of glory that he has. Everything. This statement that he makes means that everything in our lives is up for grabs for him to work within for his glory because everything in our lives is within his grip. Not just that he has control, but he has tender care, that he is holding it. One of my favorite kids' songs is, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. And man, when we go through suffering and pain and turmoil, I think we think that that sounds mean to say he's got the whole world in his hands. But that is comfort. But what will he do with it? What is he going to do with all this authority? With him holding our whole lives in his hands. What is he going to do? This is what he says. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, I've got all authority. And this is what's true about you now. You're now sent into the way of Jesus. This word, go and make, meaning Jesus has decided to take everything that you are and put you out there in the world. He didn't say, hey, all authority has been given to me. Hang out and sit and rest. He also didn't say, hey, just be. You know, like, be cool. Be, be fine. Get better. Do a lot of self-improvement. 
No, he says, go. He's, he puts you on the move. It's one of the things I love about the Gospels. The people are moving all over the place. Jesus is on the move, and he says, so you're going to go, and you're going to make disciples of all people. There's not a single person that I don't care about. There's nothing that's insignificant. You go in the power of my Spirit, and you're going to go all over the place, and you're going to make disciples of all of these people. This is what it's all about. Everything that was mentioned before is now employed in the mission of God to see people become followers of Jesus. The mission is a journey. It's a proactive pursuit of other people. Uh, One of my favorite writers, Christopher Wright, he says this. He says, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. And what this means is, God didn't say, oh man, I've got all these followers now. We better organize them and give them something to do. Because they're just, you know, everybody needs something to do. And that's like organizational management stuff. It's like, well, if you've got a group of people, you better give them something to do or they're going to eat each other, right? What, he sa- what, what Christopher Wright is saying with, that's true that we see in scriptures is, no, 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 God has a mission. And that mission is to see the whole world know him. And so what he did is, I'm going to make a church so that that mission can be accomplished. That is our whole lives, people. We've been put on the move and given the direction, and that direction is all people. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not only are you sent, but you are also on a mission of transformation. What's being described here is a big naming ceremony, a big taking of one thing and making it completely different. Baptism, it's a fun word. I love it a ton. Uh, What it was most commonly used at that time was to describe taking garments like uh, white fabrics and then submerging them in dye so that when they came out, they were completely different, had a completely different use. Uh, most often because, you know, rich people end up writing history. So we have a bunch of uh, documents about how they would take white fabrics, submerge them in purple, and then they became royal garbs. They became royal robes for people. What was just a thing of white cotton or wool is now the symbol of royalty. And so the Christian authors decided to pick up on that word. That we, we are buried with Christ, we're raised to new life, and we have a whole new quality and identity about us. And so, just so we know, the mission that we've been given is not just to make converts or something. Not to get more people to sign up. The mission is about transformed lives. The very nature of our hearts, the very perspective that we have on who we are is completely new and it's new forever. Ironically, this is what our culture hungers for. We long to have a whole new identity. I know it is because we are willing to spend millions of dollars on surgeries, on shopping, on sex, on moving all over to the different place, hoping that someone will come to us and say, wow, you're a whole new person. You've been transformed. But that sort of life transformation only happens within the life of a church and the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's souls. 
That is our mission. Then he says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Not only are you sent, not only is this mission about transformation, but you're also a guide to the way of Jesus. The implication here of these words is not, hey, teach them to know. Man, that would be so good. I think about, yeah, any, any pastors, former pastors in the room, you're like, man, that'd be so cool if it was just teach them to know. Hey, this is what God said. Now you know it. Cool. This is teach them to obey. Meaning, teach their whole lives to suddenly walk and step with the commands that Jesus gave, which, by the way, are to love him, to love your neighbor, and to love one another. Teach them to obey. A whole training of a person's life. That their whole manner of living becomes the way of Jesus. And what he's telling us about our, our role in this whole mission is, we're going to become guides to that whole thing. Uh, I, I love the, the image of Sherpas. I know uh, a few weeks ago, Jared talked about Mount Everest, if you were here, about how this, there's this high calling. It's really beautiful. But whenever people are wanting to go uh, and summit the top of Mount Everest or K2 in Tibet, uh, they don't you know, gather around uh, at base camp and have someone come to them and say, hey, we're going to spend three hours here you know, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about climbing this mountain and then go, hey, good luck. See you out there. Like, that's, that's not what they do. It'd be pretty funny, I think. Yeah, you, you need a lot of skills up there. The conditions change every time. And when we climb up that mountain, man, there's conditions change in a second. Hey, see you next week. What instead happens is you hire a Sherpa, and we've got a picture here. The Sherpa is in yellow, and and he is someone who knows the way, knows the mountain, understands what the clouds mean and what, what, uh, and even can predict the shiftings and conditions. And so when someone wants to go summit Mount Everest, they go to a person, they go to base camp, and they hire a Sherpa. That's the first thing that they do. And then that person doesn't just say, hey, this is how we go as if the Sherpa is a walking map who's just telling them so they don't have to read. But he's actually he's nurturing their whole lives up through this dangerous, perilous thing. Saying like, how are you doing? Where are your oxygen levels? How? And, and even can see what they cannot see, which is pretty phenomenal. That's, that's what it means when he says, and you're going to teach them to obey my commands. You're going to become a Sherpa to people. You're going to put yourself... Uh, around them to where you can say, this is the way of Jesus. Come and walk with me, and I know what's actually kind of going on. The other thing that I love about climbing to the top of Mount Everest, I've never done it. Probably never going to. But they, they tie themselves, and you can see in this picture, they tie themselves to one another, not the mountain. Because if they attach themselves to the mountain, bad things are going to happen all the time. Most of the mountain's ice that's going to change and shift. But what they do is they, they bind themselves to one another and to the guide, and they say, we're going to go up there uh, unified. And that's what we mean when we say a, mission, a community of people on mission is, hey, we're actually binding ourselves to one another so that we can be uh, on the mission, the purpose that God has given us to make disciples of all nations, and we're going to depend and learn and need one another every step of the way that I need to learn from you and you need to learn from me, and we are committed to each other. 
Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. We are in the Sherpa business. And then he says, at the very end, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. What a promise. He gathers these people together, some worshiping, some doubting. He gives them the greatest mission that could ever be conceived. And then at the very end of it, he says, and I am going to be with you always. What a, I mean, just a promise like that. And I don't think he's saying, hey, don't worry, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you superpowers along the way. I mean, I, I thought that for a super long time. It's like, I'm so glad I have Jesus as my Robin, and I was always Batman. So he can give me some extra. No, what Jesus is making a promise of, it's a promise of love. You are the mission. For Jesus, you are the destination. What has he been doing this whole time? What has his pursuit of you been all about? Not about saving you and making you a a foot soldier in his army. You know, I'm in the Lord's army. Great song. That's two kids songs we should do more. It's not about, man, like Jesus takes these disciples and he says, man, I want to teach you some things and now let's, you know, pyramid scheme this thing through the rest of the world. Like you get two friends and you get two friends and, you know, we're going to make disciples. That's not Jesus's deal. He gathers these disciples, not just for the sake of some mission out there, but because they are the mission. Jesus had always had in mind, I want Peter, I want James, I want John, I want Mary Magdalene, I want these people, and I want to be with them, and I'm going to do everything that is required to not just purchase them back, but bring them to my table, because I want to be with them to the very ends of the age. The whole story culminates with God being with his people. John saying, the Lord dwells with us again. That's what he is all about. And so you are not a a soldier in the mission. You are the destination of that mission. When he says, I will be with you always, Jesus is saying, I'm getting exactly what I've always wanted, and that's to be with you. So what do you get for all of this faithful work? This faithful climbing, this faithful trudging of living out on the mission. What do you get? You get Jesus. And just personally for me, I, there have been times where I've read this passage and I'm like, that's cool, that's the game plan. So now what I need to do is accomplish this thing. Thanks Jesus for giving it to me. And I lose sight of the whole thing that Jesus is the one. He is the treasure that we get. What's the grand payoff for living a life of making disciples? It's definitely not a clean house and a good car or any of those things. It's Jesus. That's the reward. What are the results that you're looking for as a church? It's Jesus. That's like the metric. Did we grow in seeing him in our midst? And if Jesus is not not enough for you, then none of this stuff will be. You can be faithful and you can come here every week and you can go out and make disciples all you want and spend all of your energy doing that. But if Jesus is not enough for you, that mission will never be satisfying. Side note, you will not do it for very long. 
Jesus tells this story, uh, a parable, about a man who goes to this field. And I don't know what he's doing there, but he's in this field. Uh, and he finds a treasure buried in it, buried in the field. And the guy does this quick cost-benefit analysis. First one ever done. He was an accountant, I guess. And what he does is he looks at this treasure and he says, wow, this is worth more than everything that I own. He, he can see. So what he does is he puts the treasure back. He goes back home. He sells everything that he has to purchase the field because what's inside the field is worth more than anything else that he has. Right? It's great. Great story. In our church, we have this phrase that we use often, which is, are you going to buy the field? Are you going to sell everything that you have? Are you going to count Jesus worthy? If Jesus is worth it, and he's the treasure, that's the, the story. The gospel is the treasure. If Jesus is worth it, everything that we have giving away will be worth it. The mission of, of, of expending our energy and our gifts and our talents and our possessions, that will be so worth it. But beyond that, we'll become realtors in the kingdom. We'll become realtors for the kingdom. We'll go around, we'll shout to people, please buy this field. I don't know if any realtors in the room, but they have a great job. They put up a whole bunch of signs that say, this is a good buy. You should get this house. Then they network with people. They join the Rotary Club. They do all of that stuff. And they're passing out cards. And they're saying, hey, you know, I've got a pretty good property. It's pretty sweet. They put it on the internet. All their relationships. They talk to all their friends. Now they post on Facebook. And they just say, hey, there's a really good deal over here. It's, it's definitely worth the money. And it's not a fixer-upper. And believe me, the return on investment is going to be extraordinary. That's who we're called to be. Yes. Realtors for the kingdom of God. You should buy the field. You should, you should engage the kingdom of God because it is worth more than anything else in this world. Amen. Nothing else even comes close. Whatever it is, however much money you have, whatever big position you have, that doesn't come even close. I think that's even some of the burden of the people that I put in the beginning. Uh, and I have no idea where they are in life, but man, becoming president, getting married on international television and walking on the moon, that does not compare to knowing the grace of God. Absolutely. The most important thing about you is about who you think God is and who you think you are. That is the most important thing about you defines and it drives everything in your life. And as you've been talking through this series, you've learned that, that God is a good father. He is gracious and abounding in love. So you're his son and his daughter. That is, that is an engine for you. That Jesus is, is the disciple maker and he's calling us to be disciples and, and walk along him and he's called us to be his followers and that is who we are. And here in this passage, Jesus is saying, I am the king over everything, and I am sending you out, and you are a missionary in everything that you do. Every part of your life. That is who you are. You're sent. You've been given a mission of transformation. 
You're a Sherpa guiding people to the way of Jesus. As we come and as we take communion, uh, I think we can come in many ways. There's, there's bread and there's juice. There's two up here, two in the back. It's like an airplane thing. Uh, the nearest communion table to you might be behind you. Uh, but as we come, I think there's a lot of times we come to the table and we're reminded, it's like grandpa's table and we're welcomed into it. And we take the bread and the wine and we know this is how we were adopted into this family and we've been given every spiritual blessing. Then there are times where we come to the table and we see Jesus has called us to himself. He's redeemed us. He's reconciled us to him. And now we get to walk in his ways. This is a feast, right? This is so incredible. And then there are times I think we get to go to the table and realize this is a banquet and some people are missing from it. There, there, there's, this bread and this wine was not just a promise for us, but it was a promise for the world. It was a promise of this is how God is going to do things. He's going to give up his life. He's going to rise again for the healing of the nations. And so as we come this morning, to come knowing that this is his body, this is his blood, it's been given to us, and it's what ushers us into the mission of God. But also, just as we do that, I wonder if we could pray for the people that we long to share this meal with us. I don't know if you remember in the story, but Jesus, when he starts communion, he says, I've longed to have this meal with you for a long time. I've longed to share this with you. Who are the neighbors and the family members, the friends, the coworkers that we long to see share this meal with us? Just as we take, not out of guilt or anything like that, but just prayerfully saying, man, this is, I would love this person to know the great gift of the kingdom of Jesus.